1: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen.
0: I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClinthan fighting valiantly against cabin fever in what for most people is now the second week of housebound quarantine. How are you doing with this all, Wade? You know, Kevin, since we last recorded a
1: week ago, I might've gone outside one time and the sunlight burned my skin. We're all vampires now.
0: Well, did you get one of those uh, special astronaut helmets with the extra protective visor to make sure that no harmful cosmic rays reached your delicate skin? You know, I
1: I was thinking that, or just one of those big bubbles, and I could could be a human-sized hamster. I I like it. I like it. I should look
0: into getting myself one of those. No, it's
1: definitely worth it. Listeners, maybe you're experiencing some claustrophobia like us. And if so, this episode is for you. We're continuing our South Korean marathon with the 1960 film from Kim Ki-young, Hanyo, or The Housemaid.
0: That's right, it's the second movie in our South Korean movie marathon. Don't bounce off the walls alone, bounce off the walls with some South Korean cinema. Coming up on episode 241 of Seeing and Believing. 선생님,
1: We are here, episode 241. This is week two, as Kevin mentioned, of our South Korean marathon. Kevin, I'm having a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking about Bong Joon-ho's mother last week, and now we're talking about another very, very important film in South Korean history
0: yeah, the these films have been a a real treat, especially at a time when a lot of us are having maybe not sedate lives necessarily, but, you know, there's a lot less variety in in at least my life staying at home pretty much most of the day every day. So it's been really great to watch some of these films. This one that we're about to talk about is one that I'm actually really looking forward to. My wife can tell you that she was in the other room when I was watching this and when the movie ended, I just cackled and cackled. I don't know if that's the cabin fever or if that's just the greatness of cinema, but there you go.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's never a good sign when your spouse who's been inside for a couple <laughs> weeks just starts laughing and can't stop. That's It's usually a bad thing. But I, for here, for this movie... <laughs> I think it's good. I think we're doing a pretty fine job here. You know, I mentioned this to you, Kevin, before we started recording. The first week of quarantine, it it felt like two years. It my my birthday was on the Monday that we right after we started quarantine. And I feel like I'm two years older um, since that (laughs) happened. But I will say this week has passed faster. Um, maybe we're in a groove, and then also in addition, my our two boys. I don't think they even know that we're in quarantine. They just seem to be fine, hanging out at the house all day long. Um, so that's a bonus. Uh, two two men after my own heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and people keep saying, oh man, when this is all over, we're just gonna be so thankful to hang out with people again. And uh, what
0: if it's the opposite? What if we're like, oh man, maybe we need to stay inside more. <laughs> Well, if that is what some people are finding themselves thinking, then the movie that we're going to be talking about in this week's episode might be just the antidote they need when they're (laughs) contemplating a life spent enclosed in a house with nobody but their family for company. We are reviewing uh, Kim Ki-young's The Housemaid. It was released in 1960, and this is widely considered Wade as one of the seminal works in South Korean cinema. The Housemaid focuses on Mr. Kim, an up-and-coming pianist and music teacher with a young family and a desire to give them a comfortable life. After moving into a much larger home than their previous one, the Kims hire a housemaid to help Mrs. Kim care for the house and the children while Mrs. Kim works from home and nurtures a pregnancy. But when the housemaid's reckless, unstable nature manifests itself, the Kims find their orderly lives falling apart. But who's really to blame for the storm of infidelity, manipulation, and violence that soon breaks out behind closed doors? Wade, as I said, uh, many people consider the housemaid to be one of the foundational works of South Korean cinema, which makes it all the more interesting that, at least in the West, it went virtually unseen until about 40 years after its release, when Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Restoration Project rescued it and restored it, and released it in the Criterion Collection so that Western audiences could enjoy it for themselves. This is a movie that has had a pretty big impact on a whole generation of Korean filmmakers, according to many sources. So my question for you, Wade, is since we did start up this project as a way to dig deeper into the cinema of South Korea post-Oscar win for Bong Joon-ho, do you see any of the housemaid's DNA in the South Korean films that came to follow?
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely do. And Watching this film sort of, and just the marathon in general, kind of spurred me to at least understand the the scope of South Korean film history, and I was surprised to learn that it wasn't till until shortly after the Korean War that artists received more freedom to be able to produce works that were not censored, and so the restrictions were eased. I don't think they were completely gone in 1960. There was a tax exemption for filmmakers, and so you have this, like you said, one of the most important works of South Korean history. And then after the the coup in 1962, so two years after this film, the restrictions come back, the tax Taxes come back, and it's not until 1987 that we we truly get some of those freedoms back in South Korea. And so you have the the new wave of Korean cinema from 87 to 97. So it's fantastic to see how this film fits into that. And I, I think I was surprised the the most, Kevin, uh, by this film because it is it is a fast moving picture, and, and when I think of a movie that's you know important or seminal or something you would see on the Criterion Collection. I guess I thought it was more of a drama, but this is a this is a horror movie. This is a drama in some ways. This is a comedy, and so when I'm looking at South Korean history and I see this film that's able to blend so many genres together, and then also knowing that Bong Joon Ho is a huge fan of this. Uh, it starts to make sense. So yeah, I mean I, I I guess I felt like I learned more about South Korean cinema by watching this movie. And overall I think it's just um it's just a slap in film. I, I think
0: it's I think it's really good. <laughs> slap in film. That's a that's a, a good way to describe this. And it's interesting <laughs> uh, and, and I do see the the reason I had that as kind of my opening question is do you see the DNA of this film in later uh, South Korean films. The reason I ask that is because I already had answered the question in my own mind, which is yes. It's <laughs> fascinating to look at the the way this film veers around in in tone and in the sympathies that it it engenders in the viewer for various characters at different times. And you begin, at least I see a lot of that uh, working itself out. In the films of directors like Pak chan and uh, Bong Joon-ho in that they're both directors where their films can be uproariously funny in, in some moments, very tragic in others, scary in, in still other moments. And you kind of see that sensibility in this film as well so that it's not all that surprising to read that many south korean directors see the housemaid as as formational to their own sensibilities in some way um this is a movie that really keeps you guessing and doesn't really tip its hand at first as to what it's going to be uh i Uh, read a review from film critic Mike D'Angelo where he talked about how this film is a melodrama, which it definitely positions itself from the beginning. But D'Angelo calls it like Douglas Sirk on acid. So Douglas Sirk, of course, the the famous director of melodramas, like all that heaven allows. Just add a little bit of LSD to that and you kind of get where The Housemaid (laughs) goes in its second half because, wow, I... Don't think I could have predicted where this film went just based on its opening act. Oh, yeah. Well,
1: you know, you say in the second half, you could even say this film starts going in crazy places even in the last 30 minutes. It's like it's it's kind of moving around and then it keeps going and going and going. And uh, it's it's just kind of it's fun to watch. And it surprises me because this is one of those movies that would probably be very irritating for me. I'm like, come on, you got to stop. What are you doing? Don't do that. Um, But it's it's kind of a joy. I wouldn't say a sadistic joy. uh, But there is something that is kind of funny about watching everything go wrong for this family. And there are some special features with the Criterion Collection. And I I rented the Criterion Collection... um, Movie through iTunes. So I I did get to see it digitally. And then there are some clips on YouTube from the Criterion collection. And there's one with Bon Joon Ho. And he mentions how the stairs are as important as the characters in this film. This is a film about class. And it's so funny to see that years, he filmed that years before Parasite. But I think stairs, I think levels, are characters in Parasite. And it is very much a film about the class struggle. And you you get that here. And particularly you have the Kim family in this picture. And they are they're pining after this this good life. They want a nicer house and so they work harder. They want a TV. So they you know they work themselves to death. And as a result of wanting all of these things, they need to hire a housemaid. So the film on the surface is, is already saying, hey, explicitly, the reason all of these bad things happen, or at least one of the reasons, is because of, uh, you could say greed, you could say keeping up with the Joneses, uh, you could say this desire to be seen as wealthy. This is a middle class family trying to get to that upper middle class level and that's what brings all this evil and it's very explicit. I mean it's very explicit, uh, but I love that. I I like the scene where this housemaid comes to the home for the first time. She is just she's out of her mind. She is not normal and the film just it it doesn't it doesn't say, "Hey, let's just kind of see and slowly reveal her character from the beginning." We're like, "This is not good." And there's something very fun about that.
0: <laughs> you just need to see that one shot of the housemaid almost literally, no, actually literally licking her chops as she <laughs> pours some rat poison into some rice to kill some rats. Like that's kind of the register that Lee Yun Shim as the housemaid is working and she's... She's frankly kind of terrifying. There are all, there's this recurring shot of her standing outside the uh, the double doors leading out onto the patio and staring inside like some sort of vampire or creature of the night. It's just, she is genuinely unsettling. But what Kim Ki-young does with her character over the course of the film is she starts off being kind of weird and creepy. And then she kind of becomes this seductress character who has her sights set On Mr. Kim and then she becomes this object of pity when the tables seem to be turned on her and around and around we go and that's kind of One of the delights frankly of this picture is how it keeps you guessing as it makes these twists and turns I also I mean I thought a lot about Parasite as well watching this not only because that film also in its portrayal of you know the upper crust family and the the underdogs who are who are you know working class and trying to you know claw their own way to some measure of respectability that's in that film there's something similar going on here of course one thing that they have in common also is the production design i love the the set design of the of the kim's home in the housemaid the walls are kind of that they have this weird texture that looks almost veiny, like skin. It's almost like this family uh, and this housemaid are kind of living inside a body or, or something. They're in, encased in this flesh-like domicile that kind of keeps them inside, and that. Almost like organs inside a body, all of them are kind of working to keep it going. Like they don't want to lose the house. They want to make sure that they're keeping up with the Joneses. They need a television set. The wife almost immediately after giving birth goes back to the sewing machine in order to keep making money so that they can stay in this house. All to kind of keep this, to to sustain this body-like home that they just can't think seem to think that they'll survive without and all of that is kind of swirling around in this picture it's just this really potent stew of images and themes that i i've found really arresting by the end
1: oh yeah and there are some great shots from outside the house looking in and it's raining and that that water running down the windows is obscuring the characters and if you look at this is almost this analogy of society at large. You see all of these members working and trying to keep this thing going and literally killing themselves to do it. And that's very explicit with, with the mom, uh, Mrs. Kim. And then there's this shot at the very end and there's a character <laughs> who's, who's dying. And this character is crawling on the floor. And we get this shot of, of feet, and they're working the sewing machine, and this character is is just trying to get the attention of that person working, and I just love it. It's kind of deliciously explicit. Of you know, just a society that's that's working themselves to death. People are dying all around them, and and, and we just we're just we we don't even pay attention uh, to it. I also saw this clip from Martin Scorsese and. I found it on YouTube. I I think it's the introduction to the film for the Criterion Collection. And he says something. He says there's this sense of the potential danger in all human interaction. And we see danger really kind of uh, in every character, in almost every scene. These these conversations have the ability to ruin a reputation or to – even end someone's life or to destroy a family and little tiny mistakes can unpend uh, what might be a blissful existence and I I think what we have here, I think what the film is trying to tell us is that in these types of oppressive societies or possibly these societies where people are so prone to give everything they have to material possessions. There is danger and competition all around us. And it thinks it reminds me of, of our world today. And you, you think about our friendships, sometimes even our best friendships, uh, because we all want to be unique and we all want to be individuals, they're competitions. You know, we we compete, you know, who's got the more talented kid and and uh, who has the more talented job or this. That. We compete with everyone, we compete with our friends. And it turns even little interactions into uh, into powder kegs, and I think we see that emphasized, you know, beautifully here. And we talk a lot about the American dream, uh, but consumerism is consumerism, no matter you know, no matter where it takes place, whether that is the United States or in a place like Korea.
0: Well, you you, you use the the word powder keg uh, in to to describe the kind of situation that's in this movie, and that's actually. Uh, in a specific line of dialogue, one one of the uh, young women who works at a factory where Mr. Kim gives these choir lessons tells another factory worker that music teachers are like a keg of powder. They're they're romantic, so you have to be really careful with you know their emotions. It's almost like you handle Mr. Kim's emotions with care because he's there. There's always something about him that's just going to blow, and. Over the course of the film, you begin to see that Kim ki isn't just saying that about this specific character. He's saying that uh, about a larger class of people. He, he's basically saying that about men. There's another uh, point where uh, Mr. Kim's wife says, you know, putting putting uh, men together with, with beautiful young women like giving raw meat to a tiger. And of course, Mr. Kim just kind of laughs in this very <laughs> almost disturbing display yeah. of jollity. It's almost like he's showing his teeth as a tiger himself. It's just a very, very interesting moment. But this is kind of what Kim is doing as a director is showing all of these forces and showing how just the slightest slip up or just jarring the, the powder keg just a little bit can lead to disaster, and it's a result of the competition that you observed, Wade, and also the the fact that there's this overarching air of a, a conservative social sensibility, by which I mean that there's this worry about saving face, about kind of keeping up with the Joneses as we talked about before, and also about avoiding even the barest hint of scandal, so that when one of Mr. Kim's students slips him a a love letter, because she has a crush on him, it's not just something he can laugh off and, and toss away, he has to go and report it to a superior just to make sure that there's no scandal. And that ends up setting the wheels of the plot in motion, just this little thing that in a different setting Probably, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that big of a deal. But for these characters, it is a big deal, and it leads to tragedy.
1: Yeah, I mean, that little that little incident sets everything off and it's it's really wild. I want to talk about um the spiritual dimensions of this movie, particularly, there is an interaction with a housemaid towards the end of the movie, and she talks about going to heaven, the afterlife. And her version of the afterlife is simply her desires being fulfilled. And she believes that when she passes away, if it's done, if it's done in a particular sense, that she will get everything that she ever asked for. And, and it's, it's not just she's going to get it, but God's going to ordain it. And she frames it as God is going to perform this wedding ceremony. God is going to give me everything. And there's also at the beginning of the film, uh, when Mr. Kim is talking, he says something and his wife says, such thoughts are not to be said in our sacred home. And there's this sense that within this culture, uh, what's sacred or heaven or the afterlife is simply just earth with us having all of our desires. It's a very selfish uh, vision of of the afterlife, uh, and then there's also a scene where a character speaks of having their own soul. You might hurt me in my life here, but I can somehow save my soul. And, and it's this fascinating look at how consumerism and how and how greed and all of those combinations. Uh, can even distort our our spiritual aspirations and our understanding of the divine, and of course we see that in our world, people who who say they're Christians, um, but they allow certain circumstances, they allow their their material well being to dictate their theology. And so all of that's kind of mixed into these cultural no- norms, uh, these historical um, ideas and circumstances. And it, it's really, I mean, and I'll emphasize again, it's just a very entertaining picture too. Uh, this is not boring at all. It's its propulsive.
0: Yeah, it, it, it does take a little bit of, of time to get on the film's wavelength because it is sort of pitched at this heightened register where uh you know the the characters are going very big like the actors are are playing to the rafters uh proverbially speaking and but once you do get on on that wavelength you really begin to get into the groove and it's it's you lose yourself in this world not because it's so realistic whatever that means but it's more that you get lost in this world because you recognize that the the impulses and the desires and the things that drive all these characters, they're very recognizable. They're exaggerated maybe, but it's, it's like that Flannery O'Connor saying uh, something to the effect of, to the heart of hearing, you must shout. And to those who can't see, you must draw large and startling figures. And you get the sense that Kim's kind of, Really throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks in this film because he wants to make sure that his disquiet with the sorts of impulses we see in the Kim family don't go unmissed. And he does that even through the the children characters. We haven't even talked about the kids in this movie <laughs> who, you know, in, in a lesser movie, you would kind of expect them to be these, these waifs who see the adults around them behaving badly. And they kind of look into the camera with these sad eyes and you, you sympathize with the kids, but the kids in this movie are every bit like you see the, the uh, cruelty and selfishness in the children every bit as clearly as you see them in the adults. And that's, again, Kim drawing a portrait of humanity as a whole, not of specific characters. He's saying, hey, we're, we're all like this, you know. <laughs> from, from, from birth, uh, we were sinful, if you will, and it doesn't get any better from there. And even if that specifically Christian spin wasn't meant for this film... You definitely see those resonances here. Yeah, yeah. And
1: I think we could even go on about the the camera work and the movement of the camera. Oh, it, that it, staircase. It, the the <laughs> staircase. I think one of my favorite shots, actually, Kevin, is this close-up of a glass of water that may or may not have poison in it as a character is walking it to uh the, the two children and it's just this haunting image but it's just so full across the screen just, just this water it's, it's crystal clear but it, it could be very very dangerous um, and then I mean we can't really talk about the end but, but you think the film is okay we're, we're done we know what happened and then the film uh, moves in a different direction and I think it works
0: really well it's such an audacious ending. I mean, like I said, I at, at the end of it, I just cackled because I couldn't. I could hardly believe that that was the note that Kim was going to end on. But it's just, it's strikingly modern, especially for those of us who are used to watching, you know, golden age Hollywood movies from kind of around the same period, where even the the more edgy stuff, like the film noirs and stuff, kind of didn't color outside the lines too much in terms of what our expectations are for a for a a story, be a bit of cinematic storytelling. This one really just kind of shatters what you're expecting out of a melodrama in its last seconds, which is just it's remarkable and probably my favorite part of the entire film is those last few minutes are just, <laughs> they're they're really great <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and it just the
1: the trumpet uh based score throughout uh, is, is, things just hit it's so oh, kind of yeah. in your it's in your the face the sound
0: design mm-hmm. like the all all of the power plays and manipulation going on inside this house which starts off big and then begins to get seem like it's getting smaller and smaller and all the while this music of discordant chords and people pounding on the piano in the in the other room just it, it just heightens and heightens and heightens and kim after a while you you get so used to the feeling of tension that when it's released You can't help but cackle almost just because you've been keyed up for so long. Mm -hmm.
1: No, that's that's very true. Listeners, The Housemaid is available to rent on iTunes as well as, I believe, some other platforms. Now, we just reviewed the 1960 version. There was a remake uh, that I think... I think it hit theaters in 2010. Uh, So this is the 1960 version. Make sure to check it out. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. If you'd like to go a little bit longer than Twitter allows, you can email us capc at gmail.com. capc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be offering some recommendations for your viewing pleasure this week. We'll be right back in just a moment. song is A High Place by Landscape listeners. We want to thank all of you who've taken the time to support us through our Patreon campaign. That's something that we very much appreciate and it helps us to keep the podcast going. We're rethinking some member offerings that we can release, but for now, you get some bonus episode as well as some other perks when you support us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash sing underscore believing underscore podcast. A number of different donation levels. One of those, uh, which is probably our favorite, is the what can you buy for $5 level. And Kevin, I was, I was thinking about that. What could someone buy for 5 bucks?
0: Well, earlier in the episode, we were talking about how all this time spent indoors might make things a little bit shocking when you finally step out into the fresh air with all of its nasty sunlight and ultraviolet rays and whatnot. So $5 would buy you just essentially a, a helmet that you fit over your head. It's completely made out of black construction paper. You can just plop it on your head, blocks all of that uh, incoming uh, stuff that you're not used to having spent all your time indoors. You know, just to be safe, it seems like something that five dollars would be a worthwhile investment for.
1: I mean, five bucks just to be careful. I think, uh, I think it works really well. So that's I yeah, mean, that's a great, that's a great deal. And if you, if you sleep during the day because maybe you work at night, then I would say it's even it's worth more than five bucks because it's just yeah, it's it's perfect for you.
0: Yeah, i i agree five dollars is a small price to pay for making sure that your transition back to normal life whenever that does come happens as smoothly and sunburn free as possible
1: yeah no that's 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 perfect listeners you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing to support us with five. It's really easy to do. And as I mentioned, we are very thankful for each and every one of your dollars.
0: So that is what's going on with the Patreon these days, Wade. But now we're going to close things out with our recommendation segment. Every week, you and I like to share something from the world of television or film that our listeners might be interested in checking out. You and I have maybe had a little bit more time than usual in in recent days to explore some of those offerings. So, what do you have for us this week?
1: Yeah, so I was I was thinking about just kind of everything, and you know, we we joke about quarantine. We know this is a very serious time, and sometimes it does help to kind of joke about um, just what's going on in our daily lives or what's not going on in our daily lives, but I've been thinking about Italy a lot and definitely praying for the Italian people as a whole and I recently saw an Italian picture that just reminded me of this time period and it's the 1962 picture from Michelangelo Antonioni and it is La Clisse. So this is a film about Two doomed lovers. I don't know if the plot is all that important, but the reason that this film reminds me of this particular point in time is because it is a movie about separation. The architecture, the, the blocking, the compositions all communicate isolation, uh, modern angst, and, and longing. These are characters who feel disconnected from the world, and I think many of us can relate to to that today. And I don't know if I necessarily love this film. I mean this is a classic movie, but it it made me feel something. I think this movie also does a good job of highlighting this the spiritual vacuum in post-World War II Italy, and I'm, I'm thinking too a lot about where we're gonna be a year from now and how we're gonna look back at this time period. And so this is one of those movies that I, I think works very well for what it's trying to say and how it's trying to communicate that, even though the, the story might be a pretty simple. A couple gets together and um, we know that they're not gonna work out in the end. I will also say this too, Kevin. There's that famous shot in this picture where the couple, uh, they kiss each other through a glass door. and So they're, they're each kissing their side of the glass. And when I saw this, I had to laugh because that's a great example of social distancing uh, for our time and our age. <laughs> um, but yeah, go ahead and check it out. It's a 1962 film, La Clisse.
0: I have a confession to make, Wade. I have seen so few Antonioni films. It's, <laughs> it's embarrassing. I, I know I should feel ashamed. I do feel ashamed. Um, for people like me who are infidels, would you say that this film is a good place to start with Antonioni or, or not? Uh, you know, I would say so I've only seen two.
1: So I I couldn't I couldn't say now the one that is um more well known than this is La Aventura, I believe it's pronounced. Uh and I actually like Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. Uh I like that one a little bit better, probably. Uh it's more well known. I would say maybe start somewhere there, but I've only seen two of his films, so I don't I'm probably I'm not the best person to ask about that.
0: Uh, well, maybe that'll be our our next uh, marathon. After we finish with the South Korean marathon, we can go go to Italy, take a voyage to Italy, and check out some more of Antonioni's films. Well, when I was coming up with the recommendation for this week, Wade, I was trying to think of other movies that kind of built this tension. In a similar way to The Housemaid. And I don't know that Billy Wilder's 1951 film, Ace in the Hole, builds tension in a similar way. But this is a very tense film. And part of that tension comes from the the, the, sheer, the, the sheer reckless black heart, black heartedness of the characters who populate ace in the hole, very similar in a lot of ways to the black-heartedness that is to be found in The Housemaid. This is, of course, starring Kirk Douglas in a great, great film role as a disgraced journalist who wants to get back to the top of the journalism world, even if it takes stepping over anyone who gets in his way, and even if it takes manipulating the story of a trap miner for his own cynical, selfish ends. I I mean, Billy Wilder is one of my favorite directors, and part of that is that I just really vibe with his cynical sensibility about human nature and what people often do when they're looking out for number one. And I think Ace in the Hole is a great exemplar of what Wilder can do when he's really been let off the chain to tell you what he really thinks about humanity.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I... I have not seen that one. It's definitely on my list. I I like Wilder a lot. Uh, I mean, we've talked about Double Indemnity and Sunset mm-hmm. Boulevard, and the, I mean, those are great. And and even um, Witness for the Prosecution, I, I saw in the last year, and I I really like that film a lot. Great, um, great movie. It's yeah. I mean, it's really kind of wonderful. Uh, the Spirit of St. Louis is is pretty nice, a Jimmy Stewart picture. Uh, but I haven't seen this one, so this is one that I definitely need to get to and. Um, It sounds like a good one for now, too.
0: Yeah, it's definitely great. Uh, Heartily recommend it, of course. Well, listeners, that is our episode for this week. We have scratched off number two on our South Korean movie marathon. We're on to number three next week. I'm looking forward to this one as well, Wade, just because I've heard so much about this film and I've just never had the time to get around to it. We're finally getting around to it this upcoming week. That would be Kim Ki-duk's 2003 film, Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. This is a film that focuses on the story of a Buddhist monk as he passes through the seasons of his life from childhood to old age, hence the title. Uh, It's got a really great reputation. It's one that... Like I said, I've been hoping to catch up with for a long time. So looking forward to talking about that with you next week.
1: Yeah, I mean if if the next two movies are as good as the first two movies, then I'm pumped. I'm really excited about these these next two films. I'm I'm very, very excited about it. So I'm looking forward to, to chatting and then Secret Sunshine is after that. Uh, it's a movie that I've been wanting to see for a while. And so, yeah, this is uh, it's going to be exciting. Listeners, make sure to uh, watch these films along with us. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to work through a couple of South Korean films so that you could watch them and provide us feedback. Make sure to tweet us at Pod, at p o d, or email us seeingandbelieving, capc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters in Christandpopculture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clawson, who every week helps us to search for the Sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLennathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later.
0: You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.